0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by charlottesgotalot.com. The Queen City is a food lover's paradise and hosts hundreds of incredible events throughout the year, including the International Symposium on Bread. Plan your trip at charlottesgotalot.com.
2: Hey, this is Hannah, HRN's program manager. It's HRN's 10th anniversary and now our summer fun drive. So show your support for independent, revolutionary, entertaining food radio by becoming a monthly recurring donor. HRN is powered by a passionate community of thoughtful eaters, and we need each and every one of you to show your support so that we can keep bringing you your favorite food podcasts. It takes a village, and every dollar donated, every listener tuning in is essential to our continued success. So set up a donation for $10 every month. You'll show us that you want to be a part of a bright future for HRN. And you'll get one of our brand new limited edition Pizza Pocket t-shirts. So snag your new favorite tea and show us some love, all for the price of about two fancy lattes each month. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate today. And thank you.
3: Hi, I'm Allie Kane. Welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building and growing consumer brands. When we launched a line of fresh sauces, I knew we were jumping into something crazy. Haven's Kitchen is a cooking school, cafe, and event space, a product that people buy in grocery stores is an entirely new business, and I had a lot to learn. So in my efforts to get myself educated, I started meeting everyone I know and respect who could advise me on production and distribution, sales and legal, PR, and social media. Then I started having those conversations here as a podcast so that other entrepreneurs can learn from them as well. This is the story of Haven's Kitchen Sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Matt Bachman, co-founder of Wandering Bear Cold Brew. Matt and his co-founder, Ben, started Wandering Bear when they were at business school in 2014, and five years later, they're selling in over 4,000 stores across all 50 states, including Kroger, Target, Safeway, and Whole Foods. Matt and Ben started the business selling directly to offices and homes, which is still a huge part of their strategy, and they're available nationwide via their website, Amazon, Thrive Market, and Jet.com. Matt, I'm so excited you're here. Um, I feel like we talk a lot about Omnichannel, um, which you know, is basically just like meeting the customer wherever they are and wherever they want you to be. And I feel like you're a very good example of a business that like actively thought about that early on. So um, I think it's going to be really helpful for all the people that are listening. So welcome.
4: appreciate that. And thanks.
3: Yeah. Um, So I don't know how much you've listened to of In the Sauce. (laughs) Sounds like you don't need a whole lot of uh, tips and tricks, but what we usually do is we kind of like start a little bit about you and what you were like as a kid and what you were interested in. I always, for some reason, find it really fascinating the jobs that people thought they wanted to have when they were nine and how they ended up in this job and how actually they're like a lot of similar paths, you know, like the-
4: like I, I love that. The
3: field marketing, I love the best is like Pat May wanted to be the manager of the Yankees and ended up being field marketing at, you know, Sir Kensington's. And I think that's like, he basically is manager of the Yankees, you know what I mean? So it's kind of perfect. Um, So do you remember being nine or 10 and do you remember what you were like and where'd you grow up and what was your vibe?
4: Totally. Um, So nine or 10 living in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. So that's where I spent most of my childhood, Atlanta, Georgia. Um, Most of childhood, I think I went in between wanting to Design cars or design houses. Okay. So, like, I would, my doodles probably like yeah. from like elementary school were filled depending on like with just car drawings, right? Like, you know, trucks or sports cars or whatever. I was like, Are you with. a car guy now? Yeah. No. I don't know. Right. I I zip, <laughs> zip car. Right.
3: Okay, cool. Um, All I right. Mean, do, yeah, I mean,
4: I yeah, lo- I love cars, but you know, right. For their utility. Yes. Um, and their beauty. Yes. But uh, no, don't own a car. Okay. Uh, New York City. Right. But do
3: you like in your, you know, how like when you're tired and you're a little discouraged and you need to like zone out, do you go on like... Car websites and look at car videos, or no, so.
4: And it was it was never it was never that. So and in and the, the house is like a similar thing. I don't like you know browse. Zillow You're not every like a real time. estate no. person, right? Um, did short, short stint in real estate, but that, that's a totally different story, right? Um, no, I think if, if I was to draw like the whatever squiggly line ends up at today, yeah, it was really about like more tactile creation and creativity, right? You those, wanted to those, make something. Those, if I if I tie it to like something that was happening in my life, right, at that time, right, right. like you know my dad and i would go to car shows and that would permeate in my the the creative outlet that yeah. would like somehow seep from that experience was yeah. was drawing and creating and visualizing like what Something could look like what would it look like if the wheels were like as big as the center of the car, right? Yeah, you know? and like we moved <laughs> yeah. we moved houses when I was a kid, and like I was fascinated with floor plans, right? Draw like, oh, like what if you had like
3: I was fascinated with floor plans too, yeah.
4: yeah. And actually, to, to like you know, maps have always fascinated me. It's yeah, like that's all floor plan is. At the end of the
3: Who was it that I was talking to that said Matt? Oh my, do you remember Maddie? We had someone whose father was a cartographer. Uh, do you remember that? Do those jobs still exist because and they were, were openings? Oh my gosh! And they were thinking about if you could map something. All right, I'm gonna get back to you. But yeah, no, I think I think if you like to make things, I I mean I can sort of see the trajectory And Understanding of how things fit
4: together. Yeah, I, I think that's probably the most right. I mean, so, yeah, when I, so you weren't like I, the kid being like, I'll sell you my two pencils for you know ten dollars or. No. I, I was probably more enterprising than entrepreneurial. Right. Like I, I always, I always had a job. I was, you know, whether it was like bussing tables, selling right. Christmas trees, babysitting, like right. I always, I like always kind of like va- that. value of a dollar earning some cash, like was yeah. always important. Um, and
3: were you yeah. a brand person? Like, do you remember brands that you loved or, you know, resonated?
4: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, I very distinctly remember middle school yeah. and taking such curi- like gen- is like serious curiosity and why at the time it was like Abercrombie and Fitch. Yeah, and I remember walking from like my mom's car to the entrance of school one day, and like being very curious about why I felt cool because yep. I was wearing an Abercrombie and Fitch t-shirt. Yeah. And I remember that moment? I was like, this is so interesting. Yeah, like it's the same. You know, at totally. some level, I was like, same t-shirt, right? But, yeah. And and for, and I've always right. tried. and to, Obviously, today, we spend so much time. We had a two-hour team meeting today yeah. on brand. Totally. And spending so much time trying to unpack that emotional connection to the consumer and how... Why does an Amex platinum card make you feel totally. that way when you take it out to pay? like that those emotional yeah. connection between brand and experience is something I spent a lot of time thinking about.
3: I mean, I think that those of us that did think about that as kids, it's I think it's fairly obvious in our brands. and I mean, I'm going out on a big limb saying that, but I, I think that if you kind of, you know, there are people out there who are very good at making models and and very good at building things and even making products, but they they're just kind of like, They kind of dismiss the brand thing, and one of the things that, I mean, I think has come up a lot on this show also is, you know, you're either building a commodity or you're building a brand, right? And in order to not build a commodity, right, to build something that makes people feel like a visceral connection, right, it could even, like, taste exactly the same, but for some reason, they're going to choose you every time there is something like secret saucy about that. And there are people that think about that more than others for sure. So the fact that you were thinking about that in middle school doesn't really surprise me.
4: Was well, so in food? So much of the experience is completely subjective. Yeah. Like you and I can be eating the exact same meal and I have no idea what like neurons right. are firing. in your brain, <laughs> Right. Right. Like it's yeah. it, not a clue. Yeah. And so, so much of it is on the brand to help I mean, I don't think you can ever fully define an experience because, like you say, it tastes good, and the person thinks it tastes bad. Like right. there's a disconnect. But to provide the language yep. and uh, you know, the rubric that someone can use to really right. understand what you're trying to get them to experience yep. is the real work.
3: Yeah, no, it's it's very cool. I want to talk to you more about that later. Um, okay, so how? To, but so, how did you land a business school? Like, did you think you wanted to be a business person, or? Well, so, I, I, I don't know yeah. what that is exactly.
4: Yeah, I, I know I know, I know uh, ties are involved though, right. Okay.
3: Yeah.
4: Um, no, so I, I was I was a management consultant. Ah. so like I was I was in the business world, right My specific, after college after college right my
3: specific, were you like an econ major?
4: Uh, sort of. I was a major that still exists at Michigan called organizational Studies. That sounds um, so cool. It's, it's very cool, um, because you essentially had get had to navigate like and piece together your own academic program, taking right. courses across econ, sociology, and psychology. Very cool. Very cool. Um, and so, um, was able to kind of define that in a way in an interview one time that landed me a, 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 a good consulting gig <laughs> after college, um, because it was very malleable, right. you know, major, um, so, found myself in the business world as a liberal arts, student, right. very light analytical background, right. having to piece together like exactly what okay, so what is a business person? Right.
3: What what is what so, is finance? Well, yeah. so
4: I but I went, you know four years into that, I think I was a little lost. Right. Know, I was a little lost. Right. I I hadn't found. A direction or a professional course I want to emulate. Right. So business school was was a break. Good right? it option. Was a, it was a it was a reset, and it's an expensive option. Yeah. Um, ended up being, you know, a, a series of serendipity type moments, both like externally and then also personally. Right. Meeting Ben and, and starting this like while we were in grad school. Yeah. Um, that were completely worth it in, in both of our our cases. But yeah, went to to take a break and figured out, and within days of being on campus, I knew I was dedicated, was going to dedicate those two years to something entrepreneurial. I just right. wasn't sure what yet. Smart. So I was committed to that. So
3: journey. you went into business school thinking, like, I'm going to find something to found, essentially. Yep. And then you were kind of like, and then kind of looking around, trying to think, maybe were you, like, analyzing the market and stuff like that yet? Or you were just sort of thinking, and then all of a sudden you guys happened to walk into class with your cold brews?
4: It was... It- analyzing lots of markets. Right. Mm-hmm. So it was like, you know, it's, it's, there's so many conversations like at the beginning of, of right. probably, uh, yeah, MBA programs across the country. It's everyone yeah. is whether they're going to end up in, in banking or, or in marketing. It's right. a big, big company. Everyone start first three weeks are all ideas, right? right. What, what if we did the, this of that, right? Right. You know, Uber for cats, like right. What, you know, whatever. <laughs> right. And so, um, so I, I think probably even more than a evalu- it was like evaluating ideas and evaluating partners simultaneously.
3: Right. Oh my gosh. It's was, like a dance. Like yeah, you guys like, basically got to the dance and you're like looking at like who's on the other side of the gym.
4: Well, and you got to find someone else who's serious by the way. Right. Right. Cause like, there's a lot of people who are just looking to like, you know, right. do some voyeuristic you know, <laughs> stuff and entre- you know, like a little entrepreneurial <laughs> sojourn in like right. for a couple of weeks and then like, Oh, you know what? Like,
3: gosh, that know. sounds like a lot of pressure. Like, um, I'm nervous now thinking well, you about know,
4: it's, that. It, what's funny, it's like, yeah, you know, it, Wandering Bear was the third founding team or idea that I worked on
3: at school within
4: the first semester.
3: Right, yeah.
4: Right, but uh, you know, all the while as I was, like, doing these other things, Ben and I were becoming friends. Like, right. Along the side, we're, we're tinkering and starting to have these light like, conversations. Right. So it was like, you know, I was speed dating on one hand, right? Well, yeah, like actually, committing to a relationship, like, like, yeah, on, the to a relationship <laughs> on the other. Committing to a
3: relationship <laughs> on the other. Like the analogy. Okay, so then... The, it's folklore at this point, but it's also true. You walk in with your homebrew, he walks in with his homebrew and was it like, did you guys like lock eyes from
4: across the room and say like, aha, this is it? Or like from like across the desk, right? more <laughs> of like a curious, like, what is that? Right. Cause you know, that, that was unique at the time. Yeah. But so, you know, so we each made cold brew, we brought it to class, started a conversation. Um, Had it occurred
3: to you before that moment that maybe Cold Brew was the entrepreneurial project?
4: It had occurred to Ben more than it had occurred Got to Like he specifically, he and his brother, his brother who wrote like our first small investment check, right, in, in the business, uh-huh. had previously before school we'll discussed the idea. They'd seen what was happening in the category. right And so he had come to the table with that. I think for us, things really accelerated as the conversations progressed and like we found our unique in. Right. I think that's what's really motivating. Yeah. Right. Or at least for us was... You, you know, especially young know, coffee, like coffee, it, you referenced a commodity category. Like right. Coffee is like a traded commodity yep. at the biggest, So figuring out what our unique angles would be, how we were going to actually do it differently is what got us really excited. Well,
3: let's talk about that. That's a perfect segue because you built it starting delivering to offices, right? So that's already different. You didn't go and knock down Whole Foods store. You had kegs,
4: Bench or so oh, we, they were boxes, we, right? Our, our first product, still our best selling product, right. was a you know, 96 ounce, 16 serving coffee on tap box,
3: right? And you would just how and everyone you knew from the business world basically you would try to get in in their offices
4: and so I mean, how that, that... that was that was a cut, yeah, like a, a half step down the road after we figured out how to like actually make it, package it, right? I so let's talk the... about
3: that. How did you figure out how to make it and package
4: sure. it? Uh, so it's kind of rule rule of food food things things generally are challenging to scale yes right so we like we figured sauce is
3: totally not challenging at all to scale yeah, we have 46 it, different ingredients yeah. for
4: five skews it's totally yeah. easy so like 32 ounces i'm sure it's the same as five gallons is 50 A, right. right exactly so for us like the rule was always rule of 10 right so we wanted to anything we were going to try and figure out next had to be 10 times right and like oh, at that right. point like 10 times bigger like we knew whatever we had done before like some of the principles would hold but like everything would have to be different totally so we went, you know, it's like we went from thirty-two ounces to five gallons to fifty gallons to five hundred to five thousand. Wow! And like each time, it's a totally different process. And but it was like yeah. at, the very, at the very beginning. I mean, it was it was it was, it was we got such um, such like a, a gratification out of working with our hands, right? You're like over in the ivory tower on one hand, yeah, and and that's like one whole side of your brain, and then spending the weekends tinkering in a shift kitchen in Queens to right. figure out how to how to actually. Uh, produce at enough scale to then package and sell the product was, was a whole nother. So that was, was trial and error, but all based on a lot of the experimentation we'd done in our home kitchens. Right. Knowing broadly when it came to the coffee and things like time and temperature what mattered. Right. But then, um, yeah, we packaged it up and called everyone we knew and said, can we, come to your office and drop off a sample.
3: And was your logo the same logo that it is now? A version d- of it. D-
4: yeah. The, br- the brand iconography has been very evolutionary. Yeah. Like, there's it's it's gotten tighter. The messaging hierarchy has gotten tighter. Yeah, bigger. sure. But, like, it's, it's we've always, uh, the end state in mind has always been, like, how can the bear be the bear, just the bear icon be synonymous yep. with what we what we do and who we are.
2: That's and very so smart.
4: um there's an element of simplicity and in most of our, you know, packaging at some point, like the bear stands alone at certain points. Yes.
3: Where'd the bear come from?
4: Where did wandering bear come from? Yeah. So what we say now is a wandering bear never hibernates. Or that's how we've like, you know, defined who the wandering bear character right. is. It came from 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 Ben in his just kind of you know own. Uh, his own psychology it's been his animal alter ego for, for it's years, like his spirit animal that's for awesome years.
3: yeah and is it literally because it never hibernates
4: like is that when you yeah when you drink as much coffee as that bear like right. it's just there's no stopping
3: Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that most of the people... I mean, it's it's interesting. I don't know. I mean, we, we're at like 100,000 downloads or something on this podcast. And honestly, could you please, all of you people who are listening, just DM me and tell me why or how or like anything? Because I'm kind of... I mean, I do get emails and messages, but I don't know exactly who's listening out there. I can't imagine everyone's a founder. My guess is that they're our founders, and I've heard from a lot of them. But then they're also probably thinking, like, is this something I want to jump into? I have this idea. How would I even start to begin thinking about this? And then there are people who, I don't know, maybe they just they find it relaxing or something. I'm not sure. But my guess is that most people, I mean, I think the real help will be, you know, I think taking something from your table or your, or your kitchen, or in this case, you know, you guys are making some, you know, in your different kitchens and bringing it into making a product that's actually packageable and safe for distribution and, you know, can be in the world. Um, that's something, uh, you know, people probably have to Figure out depending on what it is that they're making. Like we did it because we started in the cooking school, and then we went to an incubator kitchen, and then we went to another co-packer, and then we went to another co-packer, and
4: like just to suss it out. You know. That like what you just that that's a very I think relevant piece of advice. And yeah. so just to like you know, yeah s- yeah yeah clarify what I heard and what you said, which I completely agree with, is that everything is a little bit different. Yep. And so you know something we preach internally is that we need to be the absolute experts in our own product yep. and that's something you really can't outsource you can outsource right. little specifics of it right. microbiology or yep. the the extraction or the and you can understand and learn from what they know about things broadly but yep. no two things are so right. exactly matched that like if especially if you're doing something unique like for us um, the back and box packaging and 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 getting that format at scale and right. retail format was something that we didn't know had never been done before. Right. 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 You know, yeah. At, at the time when our category was getting started, cold brew, cold coffee extraction at the scales and volumes that yep. uh, that we now and, and a lot of the other brands in the category are now doing. No one like you're right. you're, you're everyone is figuring this out at yep. the same time.
3: Yeah, and I think that's part of you know Maddie and I talk about it a lot with social too, like what you know there's no playbook i mean the purpose of this podcast is to save people maybe like a couple months and maybe a few thousand dollars literally because that's what like no don't don't go down that road maybe you just try this instead but for the most part figuring out how to take a product that your grandmother's cookie and turn it into something that can be you know shipped around the country there's no one who can tell you how to do that. You just have to figure it out, you know? And there are all these resources. It's probably never been easier, right? Because you can Google pretty much anything. Um, I mean, if Alex could figure out how to make kombucha at scale, you know, I feel like that's, like, explosive potential. <laughs> so, like, people can figure it out. Um, but I think that, the, you know, the big help here is you figuring out how to sell it. You know, you figure out how to get it into the box. You figure out, like, a rough version of a logo and a brand.
4: That's where there's a lot more similarity.
3: Yes. And then where, you know, how, how did you know how to price it? How did you know how to get it to people? How did, you know, w- were you just, like, literally putting the, the boxes in coolers and pulling them around in a smart car? And-
4: Initial, uh, initially, yes. Yeah. You, you got it.
3: And then what would you say was sort of the big... Oh wait! I think we actually have a business here moment.
4: It, it was funny. Is it, it's always we always took it very seriously. Like it always felt like that this was even when it was a side, like a side, like school was the side hustle. Like right. It was like this yeah. was always what we. I, I think being full. Yeah, you know, is just a weird aside. Being full-time, I think, on the business and mm-hmm. having the business be like a full-time business, like in your mind are two very different things. Yes. I think you know, it's incredibly important, critical I, probably, to allocate the mind share, yep. like on the, the priority stack, like to have whatever you're working on, that venture or the business that you're starting, be the number one thing that doesn't mean that you necessarily need to quit your job right. for that, to be the case. Like it's not a full-time job until, you know, 40 plus hours a week of right. productive stuff can be done. Yep. So like you, it felt like a real business long before we were working even full-time on it.
3: Did you plan though on, like in your brains, was it like, okay, we're going to start with offices, then we're going to go to wholesale, then we're going to do food. Like, did you have, Kind of a map.
4: There's a a mix of plan and opportunism. I mean, like, to an extent, like, if even if you look back at some of the really early business plans and materials, like, we really have followed the trajectory we've planned on pretty closely. Like, the intent was always to start direct with B2B, to bring on online grocery, which was like the next step. That's where you Um, met Marissa. Yeah, that's where we met Marissa. Yeah. yeah, And that retail was always going to be. Further down the road, right. the one thing actually uh, you know, that was an evolution of the plan was the amount of work we do with in, in the wholesale food service space, right? Right, and and that space has changed an incredible amount totally uh, in the time that we've been in business. The the reason you know early on, um, you know, just I guess for those listening, we reach businesses, and you know that could be an office, a restaurant, a cafeteria, etc., and a number of, in a number of ways, but you know big picture, either direct, right? We'll right. have a direct account. We'll ship via FedEx or, or arrange a truck or we'll sell through distributors. Um, the big accounts are the ones that are served through distributors and managed accounts. Yep. And you, the concern always at the time when we were getting started was, can we do this in a way that's accretive to the brand? Right. Can we do it branded? Can we make sure that it's represented right, well totally. and that we're not just providing a commodity product in a commodity category?
3: We should break that down a little bit. Um Because you know, we do like they're just for people listening. So basically, food service I didn't know what food service was when we started. But food service, like using our sauce as an example, so there are like two different ways that we think about food service. I like. Do you notice that when I'm talking to the audience, I tend to like go cross side and look at the microphone, like they're in the microphone? <laughs> but the way that we think about it is like, you know, if you have like the butcher department at Whole Foods, let's say, and they want to do like a chimichurri steak, we can sell Whole Foods gallon-sized bags of our sauce which is great from a volume perspective, but not necessarily great from a brand perspective, right? Because most of those consumers, and I would say 99.999 of them, aren't going to know that that chimichurri steak is Haven's Kitchen.
4: There's also unless, of course, you you got Whole Foods buy-in to say that this is like Haven's Kitchen chimichurri sauce,
3: which will be very cool when we meet with them. I'm definitely going to try to get them to do that. Um, But there's also food service, which is you know branded. So in our case, it would be like, let's say you're buying a meal kit, and you get a little pouch of sauce with your chicken cutlet and your cup of broccoli, and that says Haven's Kitchen. So we're not, it's not our retail pouch, but it's a food service version of something that's branded, which yeah, is both more volume and brand awareness. And they're
4: seeing great. value in, in your brand and in, in the partnership right. and the ability to, to increase right. the value to their consumer by, by marketing that it's it's not just, you know... Joe's, Chimichuri's right. us at Savin's Kitchen.
3: So in your case, you didn't really realize how big of an opportunity the wholesale food service was. Well, at the beginning, it, though,
4: it, it wasn't as much. Right. Everyone was looking for private label. Everyone just wanted an, an ingredient or something that they could sell by the cup right. under their brand. And that really has changed. I think you know, as our brand has, has evolved and gained, gained you know, some um, some degree of, of awareness, that, that certainly helped. But I think yeah, at least in our category we've benefited from a consumer population that's yeah. that's more interested in the brand. In the brand. Right. So yep. like it's something that they look for as a signifier of quality. Right. And so that that has been helpful. So now you know food service is uh, wholesale food service is our largest channel. It's about forty yeah. percent of the Oh,
3: I definitely want to get into that. But first we are gonna take a little break and then when we come back we're gonna get into all of the advice and businessy things. We'll be right back.
1: This episode is brought to you by charlottesgotalot.com. The Queen City is a food lover's paradise and hosts to hundreds of incredible events throughout the year, including the International Symposium on Bread at Johnson & Wales University. HRN went to this year's symposium to learn about the science, history, and art of bread making. Here's what visitors had to say about the symposium. I love the geeky science stuff. Great food. Love the Armenian pizza. It's how much I'm eating <laughs> and consuming the carbs. The most interesting thing is just the community.
0: For me it's the the, the science of starters.
1: So much information.
2: Very inspiring so far because everybody has a different
1: outlook. I'm not technically a breadhead but I think I'm going to be one after being here. So whether you're a breadhead or just a curious mind, check out HRN on Tour for coverage of Charlotte's International Symposium on Bread and an insider's look into Charlotte's food scene. Don't miss our interview with Peter Reinhardt and Kristen Moore to learn more about where to eat on your next trip to Charlotte, a city on the rise. Learn more at charlottesgotalot.com.
3: Hi, I'm back with Matt Bachman, founder of Wandering Bear Cold Brew. Um Okay, so let's talk about the the pie chart a little bit of you know, we can't be a direct product. We just it's way too expensive for us to ship people aren't buying sauce like that. So I always sort of say that as a caveat, but I feel like a brand in 2019 needs to have a pie chart of you know, I'm selling directly. I'm selling through Amazon. I'm selling through e-commerce websites. I'm selling through regular grocery stores. I'm selling whole, whole, you know, yeah, no, right. wholesale we're,
4: we're, we're huge food service of of you know, omni-channel right. and alt-channel. Because at the end of the day, like so the how do you is- define
3: alt-channel versus omnichannel, and how would you break down? Because I read in 2017, retail as in like stores. Just for everyone listening, was only ten percent of the business. So for us, it's a hundred. I mean, right. So how how has that pie chart changed? Who's come in and taken a slice? And is that the goal for what you want it to look like going forward? So
4: that's so, all my questions. Of course. No. So so to answer the specific question, yeah. retail now year to date 2019 is about thirty percent. Okay. Of the pie chart, up from 10. and so Yeah, because you have by, big retailers, too. So that was fueled by some pretty rapid yeah. expansion. Went from roughly 750 doors at the beginning of last year to a little over 4,000.
3: Right, now. and that's pretty much Target and Albertsons were the big mamas.
4: Target, Kroger, Whole yeah. Foods, Safeway. Kroger is a big um, one. Kroger's a big one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so so that evolved a lot. You know, I think is is. Yeah, omni omni channel, alt channel. I think your 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 analogy with Havens is interesting, right? So your primary channel, right for, and probably the primary channel for most sauce competitors, anyone you'd consider a competitor, is is grocery. And so whatever the dominant channel in your competitive set is, I would define that as primary. Right. Right. Whatever the play the quote unquote playbook, the sales playbook was written for, that's right. the primary channel. But you alluded to a handful of the, the other ways to reach consumers. I think right. taking a step back, right, what's your goal yep. is, is an upstart challenger brand, right? You want to attract consumers. One of the, the arrows you have in, in your quiver to, to do so is to be more nimble in your efforts to reach those consumers in places that they might be willing, but not right. always looking for your product. Right. And so for us... Office was one of the early ways like in. So Online was fucking the Fucking smart, in. yeah. Well, but it, it, endemic to to coffee, right? Like right. That, we have a you know, right. every, A lot of people reach out to talk about, uh, which which we love and we will always have the conversation to talk about how to approach uh, B2B sales and and direct office sales and all that. But like one of the huge advantages we we have have to acknowledge, right. right. (laughs) I mean, they're already spending money on coffee. Yes. Right. So we're not creating a new line. So there's so much wind at our back with respect to that, Yep. you know, those ounces of consumption that are happening in an office setting that, you know, sauce is going to be, you know, it's going to be a lot harder to sell sell balsamic to, uh, to an office. But this is one of the things,
3: right. Yeah. And this is one of the things that I love about mentoring people that are like one step, maybe behind where i am or let's say at the same level but maybe just in a different way you know i think like the best people to learn from are like right where you know like where you're going to be Whoever in just made the decision exactly literally but you know people come all the time and they're sort of like i have this fill in the blank thing And how do I, you know, how do I get more Instagram followers and how do I get it into Whole Foods? And I'll sort of be like, actually, that would be a really good product to make sure is in every geriatric doctor's office across the country, or that would be really good in hotel mini bars. Like there's so many ways to build it out and again it goes back to and we talk about this a lot on the show like you've got to know your category you've got to know what not just why your cookie is really good but you have to understand everything there is to know about cookies and who buys cookies and where people buy cookies and and how and it like that's the part that maybe feels a little bit not as much fun because people really want to focus on like, but my logo for my cookie, you know?
4: I think it depends, you know, it depends like what, you know, who you are too. Cause I think, you know, I find that stuff fascinating. Right. But the, um, so I think, and, and to take it further, I think the intersection, right. That the center part of the Venn diagram yep. right, of, of that category knowledge. Right. And then the point of view you're trying to establish for your brand within that category yep. is how to think about alt channel. Or how to think about trial channel, right? It's where are you going to naturally encounter people that are, are looking more likely product, than right. not to be looking for a cookie, in your example? Right. And then what are the places that signify or provide context clues to reinforce the brand that you're trying to build?
3: Doesn't this, does this make you feel as like la 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 as I
4: feel? Oh, that's great. It's a ton of fun. Isn't it fun? Yeah.
3: How are, are you feeling excited, Maddie? Yeah, I, I, I could just talk about it all day, you know? Because every, like I was just saying to you before the show, every different guest that I have on has like a different product, a different like route, a different plan, a different way of thinking about it. And that's what makes it so interesting. There is no one way to do it. There are certain rules that that just exist, right? It's like the law of gravity. But within that, there's just so many fun things okay so so let's talk about your channels though because I keep interrupting you so you've got you know retail and you've got direct and do you make a difference between direct from your website and direct through Amazon?
4: Yes yes we do. okay so I mean the way we think about direct sales whether it's to a consumer whether it's to a consumer or a business is like we own that full relationship right soup to nuts, payment capture like everything and we manage the fulfillment. Almost always through FedEx
3: got it, and those are primarily the office
4: like big boxes with the majority right. yeah the majority of that for us is office right. I mean we have a a solid base of of direct to consumer accounts, however we are actively transitioning them over to Amazon right
3: it's right. better for the consumer yeah, and I don't think you have as much you know the thing about I think owning your consumer is a little bit. There's a lot of brands, I feel like, right now out there who've decided that they're food companies or tech companies because they own their consumer, quote unquote. And I'm sort of like, eh, kind of. You don't really own your consumer. We've like, always, you might have their information. And I say we're but,
4: transitioning them to Amazon. The reality is we're transitioning them to whatever mode of direct delivery, if that's what they want, is going to be cheapest for them. Right. Right. In terms of delivery costs and who's running what promotion. I mean, right. at the end of the day, we. A, and I co- co- coach our sales team in this, like our job is to play referee and we're the referee and every call made in favor of the consumer. Yeah. And like, it's, you know- I love that. We're not supposed, you know, we don't prioritize uh, or prioritize part- one partner over another. Like we, right. we, uh, we want our product to be, it's available to, to consumers as it can be and we want them to find it however is best for their shopping routine. Right which is a big reason why retail became such a big piece because such a huge amount of basket is still spent in brick and mortar
3: totally. retail. Totally. And they say, I mean, I think like cuz you know, I'm sort of like I'm like the luddite who's like pounding on the pavement saying like, okay, fine, Build even if stores. 20% of, you know, all grocery sales by 2025 are going to be 80% are in brick, fully, brick and mortar. Fully exactly. Yeah. And by the way, cold products, fresh products like there, there's more than eighty well, percent, right? and, and
4: for, forget that. Like, you're, there's also a, a large percent of the population that legitimately enjoys going to the grocery store. Yeah,
3: more so millennials too. I mean, I have to say, like, that's the research it's they enjoy of the, original the experiential
4: the hunt. retail. Yeah, concept. exactly. I mean, like, it's 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 that's suddenly on so trend again. <laughs> right.
3: <laughs> what well, goes around comes around. I'm 47, so I'm like just waiting for like certain things to happen because I've seen them happen before. Um, okay, so. So you, I know that you kind of always knew in your brain that you were building a business. But like in my case, for example, it wasn't really until like I sat down with John Lawson and he sort of explained why the velocities were so good and that I'd better sort of really think about this as like you might want to hire people and you might want to actually find a way to like make this less expensively? Because I didn't know really, I didn't understand
4: Velocity. It's so amazing that he had you that know. conversation with you.
3: I mean, he's he's been, like, I talk about him a lot because he's been like our like brand whisperer basically since There's the
4: game. I mean, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have the business we have without without his support and Ellie's support yeah. as well. I 100%. I mean,
3: uh, totally. Um, and you have to say Marissa because she will be oh, listening. Well, so Marissa just... We haven't just, got we haven't <laughs> For everyone listening, so Marissa's as our, at Sauce, our head of operations, but she used to be like the head merchant oh, yeah,
4: well, at Fresh Direct. She was and, the one with the, she, I mean, it was, it was her vision for, or or in the alignment of that with ours that gave us our first real shot at wholesale. I mean, Fresh Directs still one of our, our biggest customers.
3: And I think that that's another really good thing for, you know, one of the things that I think when you go into a retailer meeting and like you're meeting with a store buyer for the first time, one of the things that really hit home when we were in the Chobani Incubator, which continues to be more and more relevant, is your job as the founder going into that meeting isn't like, please get us on the shelf. Your job going into that meeting is like, what do you need? What do you feel your consumers are looking for? How can we fill that? And how can we work with you in partnership, basically, it just sets the whole thing differently. And I now know enough buyers to know that when people go in there and they're like, "Here's why we should be on your shelf," and this is our brand, you know, it's just a very different conversation than like, "What do you see?"
4: Totally. Well, and it really is magic when that's reciprocated. Yeah. When they when they pick up the baton and want to have that conversation. Yeah. And that's when then you can really get some innovative and interesting things done. And that's what happened with Fresh Direct. 100%. Yeah,
3: that's awesome. So then in 2016, this is two years later, right? From what I understand, you were able to raise $2 million. Yes. And what I thought was kind of unusual, if my research is right, is that you found some like institutional investors at that stage. So... I think that's really impressive, right? Because you were still early. You couldn't have had crazy sales at that point.
4: No, I mean, just really good proof of concept, I think. I mean, fresh direct again was a huge part of that. Right. I mean, it's been so, so core to the starting of the brand. Um, we were able yeah, what's been what's interesting about the funding space yeah and like you know, the answer is like should I raise money and, and do I like it That's is tot- other, again, yeah. to- totally different thing totally different answer for everyone for us it was absolutely the right decision yeah um, and and we're lucky yeah, and anyone starting a food business today is lucky because this capital bridge yep. down to early stage has been built that yep. was not previously there um you know, our first uh, first institutional investor, still one of our largest investors, uh Excel Foods. Yeah, they built a Lauren fund. Lauren
3: was on here. Oh was she? Yeah. That's
4: amazing. Um, yeah. The, uh, so Lauren's on our board. Yeah um and she's fantastic. And uh, you saw the vision along with us in right. those early days, they'd built a fund specifically to invest. So they led the, the the round you're referencing was our uh series seed, right? Like right. the first first you know, yep. equity capital that we raised um, since raised a series A to continue funding the growth. And yep. I, mean, I think it's a strategy, yep. right? And, and I think you need you both, uh, to understand what your goals are and you need to be okay with you know, the, the pros and cons of yeah. I mean, taking outside capital, with inviting, well, welcoming, and really embracing other voices at the yep. table versus fighting them. That's like an absolute, that that level of collaboration yep. is absolutely critical.
3: Yeah. Um, and trusting that, you know, I think it's just a mutual trust thing. We've actually had, I've had a bunch of, I had Sarah Foley from SWAT on here and I had Lauren, I'm sure I'm forgetting someone else, another um, either venture or just like institutional basically because, you know, I think people get the wrong idea about bootstrapping because I think the media sort of paints this picture of like they bootstrap forever and meanwhile like there's sort of this romanticized notion of like people sleeping on their floors and not being able to make payroll but well, you know. I see I think
4: it's not in. in you know, bootstrapping is a great strategy if the goal is optimum control and if you're in a category where no one else is raising capital or moving that fast
3: and if you have the money to spend A million or two million dollars just getting to where you need to be to, you know, reach some. I mean,
4: or the time to get there very slowly.
3: Or the time to get there very slowly, right. And unfortunately, I don't know that there is a category right now. Like, part of the good news is that it's never been easier to start a food or beverage brand. Part of the bad news is that it's never been easier. So, I don't know, I mean, we talk about this a lot, and I have a few friends that are you know they're they're holding on, you know, and i they have amazing products, and I think they have an amazing you know community that loves their products um, but it's it's a it's different, you know it's a different way to build it, so you built it, um you got the two million, and then or did you have though i mean aside from the proof of the concept like I'm now asking sort of personally, because like, did you have a way of, I feel like it for us as a seed round, like I'm looking more to family offices and individuals and I feel like everyone says like, we look at things with a run rate of a million dollars and we want you out of more than, you know, more than one region. And, you know, so I don't, I feel like it's early for them. Um, did you have any sort of secret way of of spinning it or was there anything you feel like you did particularly well grabbing an excel or or an institutional like was it just your willingness to sort of work with them or you know
4: well i think collaboration is probably probably something some Funds would would look for, but you know, the the kind of the brass tacks economics of, of deal structure and what they look at right. do tend to be somewhat rigid. Yep. Sometimes you know, listen, they'll always make exceptions as you, well, as you, as you right. see in press releases. Yes. And you know, like the backstory, but you know, that it's also it's it is you know the fund thesis for a reason and in, in a. Right. In a it an easy way for them to say no sometimes,
3: and it's almost harder when they say, you know, when because I've gotten you know, calls and like, like, they're like, I'm like, I looked on Crunchbase, like, you're you write three million dollar checks, and they're like, no, we can flex down, and then then they don't, and it, I'm like, like, we
4: need you to be at a million run rate, We're right. like, well, I need to get to a million, right?
3: Exactly, and by the way, when I'm at a million run rate, this is going to be a different conversation, right? So,
4: 100, yeah. percent. I mean, I think one
3: run rate by the way anyone listening is basically it's a little bit it's a little it's, bit it's fuzzy fuzzy right because it's basically taking the sales of your month basically and multiplying them out by 12
4: one way to do it right great way to run run rate a business that sees seasonality like you know, right. Ice coffee does, like yes. Colver does, is you multiply August by twelve. That you would right. much bigger business than multiplying January by twelve. <laughs> right. Exactly. So we have a seasonally adjusted run.
3: Of course areas. you do, because I mean the reality is every business is seasonal. Right. Whether you know the guayaki guy who yeah, right. was here was talking about and, that. And, too. and
4: they say run. I mean I think I think most most of the most investors look at last twelve months.
3: Right. So they want to see that you have a million any twelve in sales, month period. Right. right. In so, a twelve month period.
4: Um, but so in terms of attracting that first capital. Yeah you need to be, and I think one thing that benefited us is we had a point of differentiation that, that people, uh, both in the, in the route to market to office and in the products that, that we were able to tell like a uh, compelling right. story around about why that mattered and could ultimately become relevant and scalable in the space.
3: And speaking of that, my guess is that in 2016, Cold brew as a category was probably sort of like interesting and, and sparky for people looking to give
4: Yeah, you know. and that fueled an incredible surge right. of, of entrants into the category. And
3: how room. is that feeling now? Right? Like I actually we had um we had Alex who started Pilot Kombuchan, or, you know, um Anita who started um Anita's coconut yogurt. I mean when she started coconut yogurt, there was no non-dairy yogurt. Literally, there's like soy dream or something. Now, almost overnight, there's like a massive set, and it's a similar kind of situation. I think cold brew is a little more regional if I'm not mistaken. like
4: I mean, still, and I think that's one of the great things about coffee is you have this mix, right. Of right. you know, hyper local to regional to national. Right. And mimicked across like the whole foods in the different regions where you can see something different. And it's one of the awesome things about the category. Um, yeah, so I mean, there there was a period in time, I th- summer 2016. I'd have to ask Ben, but 2016 or maybe even 2017, where it literally felt like every morning we were waking up to a news alert, like a press release of <laughs> A another. new cold brew, right? And that certainly has slowed down, yeah. And and retailers are picking, their, yeah, their picking horses. their horses, yep. and, and being slower to change things out and giving yep. brands time. And so we're at we're at a, an interesting point in right. the category, but but one where, frankly, I think we've seen an incredible amount of benefit from the diversity in our channel mix.
3: Right. that's awesome. I'm so,
4: not even sure we I fully answered that question. So No,
3: I mean, listen, there's no way to it has its successes. No, assets about the, about the channel
4: mix. I think we Oh, yeah. yeah.
3: <laughs> I probably didn't let you answer that question. I'm like looking at my notes and I have so many other things I want to ask you and my eyes on the well, clock let's, too. Let's go. Um, okay. So, um let's talk a uh, Okay, let's talk a little bit about um going into new markets, right? Because, um, you know, we talk a lot on the show about like core and more and like really owning your home base and like crushing your region and then slowly breaking into other regions. We're about to launch in... 90 some odd stores in the Midwest and another 90 some odd stores in the Southeast. And we're all frankly a little bit terrified because Maddie's got to start running like dark ads and we have to like build a ground game. You know, so much of what we do is demos in the field. We're not going to have the control. They don't know us. Like we're a cooking school. We're pretty well known in New York, but were, do you have any like really good advice for? I mean, launching in regions where you you don't have home team
4: advantage a little bit. From our experience, yeah. the uh, the most actual the most actual thing probably saying a couple seconds yeah. is really commit or don't do it at all. Right. And and the reason I say that is is it is much harder to manage business outside of your home market. Yep. Especially if you're doing this, I don't know what you know, the retailers are that you're working with for the for Fresh Time and the Fresh Market. Right. So fantastic, great, great retailers yep. with with, you know, a consumer that's looking for this type of product. That's yep. fantastic. But you know, the uh, I, th- I guess the appetite to to wait things out and wait for results yep. is relatively short, yep. and
3: yeah, know, like- I, I
4: think so. There, there, there's this constant tug of war between strategy and opportunism. Mm-hmm. Opportunism purely as itself isn't a strategy. The preparation right. to be ready for the opportunism and to totally. take advantage of the good opportunities as they come about is the real nuts and bolts. I think of of a good strategy is is being malleable, and there are things yep. over our history that have come across the desk. Um, yeah, yeah, we didn't expect the fresh market. Yeah, and like, listen, sometimes you get a good opportunity, yep. right? Fresh market, probably second biggest retailer reporting into spins, like yep. the, the natural channel, you know, uh, record of truth for who, yeah. who, who's winning and losing, right? Yep. And like, that's a, that's a great retailer to pick up. That's, yep. a, that's a major coup. Got to go after it, got to right. support it. Then the question becomes, what do you do with that? So now we're in the fresh market. We're in the mid Atlantic region, right. we're in a little bit of the Southeast. Yep. Like, how do we. I think they have a store on Long Island. Like how do we like how do we take advantage of this?
3: Yeah. I mean and and that's the thing. Like we're, you know, we you know, you make a decision at some point, like, all right, we're gonna we're gonna really do this thing. You know, we're gonna take in the money, we're gonna build the team, we're gonna like really figure this stuff out. And I mean for us it's basically like digital and ground, you know, and we're just putting a ton of resources into trying to figure out the best way to reach people through Instagram and pretty much through Instagram, I'd say yeah, a little, a little Facebook and then really building out like best practices of demos and showing people how to use the product. But other than that, you know, there's not all that much that, you know, I mean, it's yeah. hard also to do national advertising when you aren't available nationally. You well, so know? here,
4: here's like the, the one, I guess, benefit, right, yeah. positive of, of specifically what you're talking about in that example is it is contained. And, yep. and you know, it's really hard to do nationally is both pay for and run a national demo campaign. Right, right. Right, and create <laughs> any sort of density yes. in, in frequency you know, if you're trying to demo at 4,000 stores yeah. or even nationally at Whole Foods. I mean, yeah. 400 stores. I mean, yep. that, that is just a lot of activity that's incredibly expensive. Yeah. So you're talking fresh market, you know, 90 of 160. Yep. Kill it, like yep. absolutely kill it, right? You, that that is a small enough chunk where you can yep. really support it, where you can be hyper targeted in your advertising uh, online, yep. and and really work to build um, to build that case study of success that you can replicate. I mean, now, actually executing that's the hard part. Right, yep. staying staying focused and saying, you know, okay, we said yes to Fresh Market, that means that we actually aren't going to have the resources to do Fresh Market well and go after right, Sprouts. You know, sp- right, another great one.
3: Yep. Yeah. No, it's interesting. And you're planning a plan. You know, we have meetings coming up in the next couple of weeks in various places around the country. Well, and you're and getting
4: the, into the predicament, though, where, right. which is, which is that, the capital raising crux. Right. Right? Because you know what? You know how you can do both sprouts and fresh market? You raise, raise money. raise money. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, for all of you investors <laughs> listening who want to put in some chips into a sauce brand. Um, okay. So... Any words of caution or advice? How do you stay on your own course, but also kind of be prepared for the opportunities when they come? Are there any things that you wish someone had said to you in 2014 or 2015 or 2016 or last month that, you know, you would advise people, you know, a couple steps behind you?
4: Being being able to articulate and stay true to your own vision for what you're trying to build mm-hmm. and for what you believe what you believe to be true for the way that you're looking to build within the, you know within the sauce category or for how we're looking to build a brand within you know within beverage or within coffee yeah. i think is very helpful in triaging all of the advice that you get on in the sauce or in any book you read or by going to to BevNet or, you know, any of the, or Project Nosh or any of the food conferences, right? Right. There's a ton of great, you know, we were talking about this at the start, like ton of great advice out there, figuring out how to contextualize it for yourself. Is that, you know, when I think about the times that we have veered off Mm -hmm. course, it has been to follow convention only to realize that convention doesn't necessarily apply.
3: Right. Yep. Yeah. No, I love that. Um, and is there anything that you wish you had done a little differently?
4: The only regret yeah, we, nothing that we had really done differently. Only things we would have done faster or sooner.
3: Okay. Can you give me an example?
4: Going into retail. Yeah. I mean, we were. Yeah. You know, this. This is an example of. You know, that I guess here. Here's the counterpoint to the advice about being true to your thesis. And right. It's like understanding why. Right. Like we had a very strong ecom and Direct thesis quite frankly, without a full enough understanding of how consumers shop, right. buy, and consume the liquid ounces that drive every beverage yeah. business.
3: I think it's funny because I have gotten all the, I've gotten like incoming from like venture sort of techie funds. And I think they're really just interested in like understanding distribution. I think that there was like a little bit of a misunderstanding of how e-commerce and direct was gonna sort of take over the planet. And I think people are starting to realize that the grocery store is not dead and not sick. Yeah. No. Um, Okay. I mean, you're going to have to come back on because I have questions about innovation and I have questions about partnership and all of that, but I have to wrap up. And so my last question is, I'm sure you have great moments all the time, but can you think of one that was like a, huh, I'm psyched. I love what I'm doing
4: moment. So... Leaving so one of the one of the more vivid memories we have is leaving the meeting with Marissa oh. at Fresh Direct back in like the what would it be, like October twenty fifteen. Yeah. Or October twenty fourteen. To launch like January twenty fifteen or right. something like that. Uh I mean like land you know, we were we, we had spent so much time preparing and thinking about and like really getting that first that first big sale. Yeah. I think now the things move, things are moving very fast. Yeah, and in what what you know the, the the amazing moments are when there are two or three things that happen in yeah. a row, right? Yeah. It's it's when 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 you feel acceleration happening yep. from one win after the next, yep. and then three big opportunities on the right. And you just, and they
3: do seem to come like that. It
4: it rains, the team feeds off of it. Totally. Yeah. Like when you're in these great momentum moments as an entrepreneur, you get addicted to speed and more than even speed acceleration.
3: Yeah. I know. I feel that. Um, all right, Matt, thank you so much. Um, it was awesome having you here. You are going to have to come back like in six months. It's been a Because pleasure. I have all these other questions, and I just had so much fun talking to you. Likewise. Um, Matt, the engineer, is at his wedding right now, so he's not here. But thank you so much, Amanda, for engineering. And um, I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce.
2: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network.